1: A special live edition of the Seneca Podcast coming to you this week from the inaugural symposium of the 1990 Institute here in San Francisco, California. The 1990 Institute is dedicated to broadening understanding and building trust between the people of the United States and China through education, philanthropy, and collaboration, just like the Seneca Podcast is, except for the philanthropy part. Uh, anyway, I am Kaiser Guo, and I am delighted to bring you this weekly discussion of current affairs in China, which is produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of the most important news from China in just a few minutes a day with a free email newsletter, a handy smartphone app, and at the website subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. Today, we are going to be talking about an individual who has also been reshaping the world... <clears throat> That person is, of course, Donald Trump. And uh, given that we're in San Francisco and that this audience isn't all white and male, I dare say most of us here today would say he's reshaping things in a manner we don't particularly like. So. Uh, How will the Trump presidency shape this vitally important bilateral relationship between, of course, China and the U.S.? Uh, Clearly, it's going to have an impact along several dimensions on the economic relationship, on the economies individually of the two countries themselves, on the global trading system more broadly, on matters of security, of course, on popular attitudes of both Chinese and uh, their attitudes toward Americans and Americans toward Chinese, but also... Of uh, it'll impact attitudes of what people in other countries and thir- other parts of the world feel toward China and toward the United States, respectively. So, today, to help us understand the challenges that the US and China face under the fine tuned machine that our president believes his administration to be, uh, we have invited some of the very smartest people I know to share their insights. Uh, unlike this audience, however this this uh, this panel is unfortunately all male, as you will notice, uh, something about which I am very painfully conscious. I note, however, that it is only half white uh. <laughs> for for the record, I really did try. I think Monica and Margaret will attest to the the, the the uh, agonized conversations that we had over this topic. Uh, I asked them repeatedly to try to include women, but given the caliber of the individuals that were brought on, I trust that you will forgive them, forgive me, and the rest of the day's programming was, after all, a little more gender balanced and will continue to be as the day goes on so first up let me introduce john pomfret on my left here a veteran journalist who served for many years as bureau chief for the washington post in beijing and is author most recently of the beautiful country and the middle kingdom a book that i highly recommend and uh who full disclosure i think it's time to make this announcement uh actually uh, as of four days ago is i am delighted to say my colleague at sup china uh, where he is now editor-at-large and will be contributing original reporting uh, to our publication. You should all check out this two-part interview that Jeremy Goldcorn, my co-host, and I did uh, with John about his book, The uh, Beautiful Country and the Middle Kingdom, a couple months back. Great to have you back, John, and welcome aboard, man. Thank you. Let's hear it! I am also delighted to uh, to welcome Yasheng Huang, who is somebody I've admired for a very, very long time. Uh, he is professor of Chinese economy and business at the fabled MIT Sloan School of Management, and writes very prolifically, not just on China, but also on India and on the United States. He was in the, the trenches fighting on, on Weibo. We all watched him do this, the the ch- ch- immigrant Trump supporters, and I think he'll, he'll be able to share some of his stories from that. How are you, Yasheng? Welcome.
0: Uh, after getting some death wishes i <laughs> <laughs> so no death threats here today um, death yeah, wishes yeah. not death threats <laughs> uh, well what
1: you have to have a death wish to take those people out in the the, the, the shark tank that is you know online discussion in China. And um, finally, I am thrilled to to be joined here by Andy Rothman, who served in the Foreign Service for 17 years before moving to the private sector. Uh, he was the macro, uh, macroeconomic strategist for CLSA for many years before recently repatriating to right here in the Bay Area, where he now serves as investment analyst for Matthews Asia. If you haven't already, you should listen to our recent Seneca interview with Andy, an episode which still holds the record actually for the most number of downloads, probably because of its very contentious and catchy, clickbaity title, Why the China Bears Are Wrong. And he will tell you a little more about why the China Bears are wrong today and maybe get a little bit of pushback from some other panelists, but let's see. Let's make some noise for this amazing, if regrettably all male panel. <laughs> so I'm going to turn my first question to John. Uh, why don't you start us off and talk about Trump and his puzzling appeal to uh, to to many Chinese and uh, will Yashon can join in here as well because he was, as I say, in the trenches? Well well, before the election, it was already quite clear that he had significant support at least among ordinary Ch- ordinary Chinese, and and that even among recent Chinese immigrants to the u s there was considerable enthusiasm for Donald Trump. I know this firsthand is because I wrote about this phenomenon and when my article was translated into Chinese I got, if not death threats, then a lot of very angry comments and I didn't have the death wish either. Uh, my wife, on whose observations I based a lot of this, uh, went into hiding and was not to be seen for, for many months as a result of this. So anyway, how would you characterize attitudes toward Trump in China among ordinary Chinese people? Are, are they just sort of seeing a repeat of the old pattern of campaign trail China bashing, followed by a little bit of realism once in a while. And how has this changed in light of things like uh, the phone call, in, in light of his his uh, apparent acceptance of the one China policy?
2: Well, I think in, in the beginning, as the campaign was unfolding, uh, many Chinese were attracted to his brashness, his entertaining quality, and the, the fact that he, as he likes to Think of himself as bigger than life. Mm-hmm. And so there was that kind of entertainment meets politics aspect to it. Uh, the Chinese also didn't like and don't like Hillary very much, and so that definitely helped. Uh and then also but in the United States, though, among the Chinese immigrant community, you see a lot of very positive things said about Trump, partially uh because Many people in the immigrant community have become immigrants, become Americans the legal way. And so his bashing of, of illegal aliens resonated amongst them. And there's also sort of a racist quality, if you will. It's, it's will. a difficult thing to touch on, but it's there, there's there's that. And, and Trump's perceived racism resonated among uh, some early uh, uh, you know, Chinese immigrant communities. Uh, So I think and now since then, since his election, I think there's a lot more concern in China about 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 Trump, uh, partially because he's such he's so totally unpredictable and not just Americans are sort of amazed with his unpredictability. Chinese are as well. And so his phone call to Tsai Ing-wen, his routine dismissal of basically core issues in the US China relationship have really worried a lot of people, specifically his his threats to kind of if you will, blow up the trade trade relationship. And that that's caused a lot of neuralgia in China now. And we will be talking about uh, a lot of these
1: threats about the, the trade relationship. But first, I want to turn to uh, Yashong and get maybe the elite perspective on Trump uh, from, from among Chinese. No, no, not from you, but from Chinese elites. So <laughs> <laughs> but no, presumably you were you were I mean, you certainly do qualify as a coastal elite. But you, you were uh, there among, you know, representing the forces of the Baizuo of Baizuo, <laughs> uh, fighting against a lot of these uh, you know, people who were also kind of well. Unfortunately, educated elites who lived in Beijing and Shanghai uh, on on, what can he characterize their attitudes and how those may have drifted in light of what's happened recently?
0: Yeah, so let me say that uh, one explanation that doesn't hold water is the one that says that Trump and the Republican Party are opposed to affirmative action and affirmative action affects negatively the welfare of the Chinese uh, uh, immigrant families. The, the, why why I say this is not the right explanation, even though this is the explanation that is voiced by the Chinese uh, community, uh, educated uh, community. The reason is very simple. Affirmative action affects the Jewish uh, uh, population, the Indian American population, equally and probably more. You do not see this level of support not just tactical support but the emotional attachment to Trump right so it is this is a a, a explanation that is often offered to explain the behavior of the educated chinese uh, immigrants because one big difference between the chinese supporters of Trump and the uh uh and I, I don't want to say American supporters; many of the Chinese are Americans now. But the but the white supporters of Trump, the big difference is education. Right? So if you look at the data, the more educated people tend to support Hillary, and less educated people tend to support uh, Trump, except for the Chinese community. Right. Right. Um, and <laughs> so essentially, their 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 behavior is similar to people who are at a lower uh, educational uh, uh, level. And this is not a criticism per se, but it is something very interesting to explain. And the explanation offered is that the Chinese care about education, but Indian Americans care about education, Jewish uh, uh, families care about education. I think fundamentally it has to do with the lack of, I I, I don't mean to be, too pejorative, uh, but I don't know how to help it. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> it's a lack of sophistication oh, a uh, in the way that many Chinese approach democracy, and they the the their view of democracy is uh, democracy is a way for for my side to gain power. Once I gain power, I demolish the opposition. This is exactly the way that Trump thinks about the function and the. Uh, and the and the usefulness of uh, winning the v- victory. So there's a lot of emotional alignment between him and this, and, and this particular portion of the Chinese uh, American uh, supporters, and and I find it very very troubling. And there's a v- good book by uh, Farid Zakaria. The name of the, the title of the book is uh, Illiberal Liberal Democracy." And he was talking about democracies such as Malaysia and, and those countries or, or Egypt after uh, the country emerged from authoritarian background. But here what we see is the behavior of the illiberal Democrats, right? So people, people who reside in a democracy but behave as illiberals. And I find it very troubling per, at, at the personal level as well as at the intellectual level.
1: Uh, Following the Tsai Ing-wen phone call, the famous Tsai Ing-wen phone call before he actually assumed office, and then with Rex Tillerson's uh, confirmation hearing in which he threatened an actual naval blockade, or or practically did, and then, of course, with the Xi Jinping phone call with Trump, Uh, have attitudes changed, though, among— and let's let's, let's talk both about uh, Chinese Americans, first-generation immigrants, and among Chinese elites—
0: There's definitely on the margin, there's some softening uh, by the Chinese-American supporters of Trump given what has happened. Uh, The thing I feel sad is there's this incapacity to anticipate uh, things, right? So essentially you have to have a big rock hitting uh, in the middle of your head before you can see, okay, so this is the impact and... uh, Usually, educated people have some capacity to anticipate, have some capacity to link rhetoric with policies, and there's a massive failure of of that on the part of some very my my own students, uh, MIT. So, MIT is not a uh, is not a trivial uh, intellectual institution. Some of my students are uh, really just you know very well educated. Uh, so this, I, I have to say through this whole experience, because I was in the trenches, I really learned to be humbled as an educator. You know, I see this as a personal failure on my part, not to be able to educate reasoning and science and hypothesis and importance of the evidence to the next generation of the Chinese. I, I feel very bad about myself. Right. I, I, I've been overpaid by MIT. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh sp- speaking of uh the the disconnect between rhetoric and policy Donald Trump beat the war drums on trade uh, very aggressively on the campaign trail uh and yet uh we've seen you know of course he threatened and has already pulled the plug on the Trans-Pacific Partnership which was more bundled probably anyway but also has threatened uh, to to Pulled the U.S. out of NAFTA. He is very generally sort of hostile. Takes a very kind of zero-sum view on trade. Uh, he, of course, most famously appointed Peter Navarro as his so-called trade czar. And 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 I, maybe I'm not being too presumptuous in assuming, Andy, that you you disagree with the position position taken. So I'm giving you this opportunity to cut the Trump trade uh, policy a new one. <laughs> cut him a new one, Andy. So tell tell what is wrong with with, with the way they. I mean. There are I mean on on the other side, he has not named China a currency manipulator as he had threatened to do and has not slapped an across the board tariff so far. Is this a disconnect between rhetoric, campaign rhetoric and, and actual policy? Or do you think that we should take him seriously at his
3: word for what he intends to do on trade? Well, let's start by not talking about China for a moment and talk more generally about the U.S. economy and the role that trade plays in it. And, you know, I'd welcome an opportunity for a new administration to come in and talk about how some things might need to be done differently because we, we do face a lot of problems here. Uh, there's a large segment of our population of our workforce that has not shared in the, in the benefits. But my problem is blaming the wrong thing for that. And if you don't, Start with a fact based assessment of where the problems lie in our economy, then you certainly can't solve them and you're most likely to exacerbate the problems. And so let's start with a few examples of how I think we're engaged at the direction of the administration in some fact based, fact less conversations about trade. Um, one of the things you hear all the time is that Donald Trump says he's going to make American manufacturing great again. Well, if you look at the data, American industry. American manufacturing is already great. Our industrial output is at almost record levels. And the record point was just a couple of years ago. Our factories are producing more by value than they've ever produced before. What has changed is they're producing more stuff with fewer people. But this is not a bad thing. This is not because we're buying more stuff from China. This is because American companies have become really, really good at raising productivity. And this is a process that's been underway for a long time. The share of manufacturing employment in the United States is a share of total employment peaked in 1952. I don't think we imported very much stuff from China back then. (laughs) We didn't import a lot of stuff at all back then. Uh, But most economists agree that the primary reason why we have so many fewer people in manufacturing is simply a good story, which is we're more productive. And this is not just an American thing. The same thing's been happening in Germany. The same thing's been happening in Japan. And we have to realize that most of this is due to automation. There was a fantastic editorial cartoon in Newsday over the weekend where ICE, the uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement Police, are in a factory. And there's a guy with an American, America First t-shirt. And he's pointing at a robot saying, there they are. Send them back to the country they came from. <laughs> so I guess my plea is we need to start getting back to what the reality is. And the reality is that we're doing really well and that fewer people are in manufacturing because we're rich. And rich people tend to spend more of their money on services, like private airplanes, uh, trips (laughs) to Hollywood. (laughs) And as a result, the increasingly larger share of employment not only here but in Germany. You hear people like Navarro you mentioned before say, I want to take American manufacturing back to the way Germany is. Manufacturing employment in Germany has been plummeting as well for the same reasons. So let's get back to some of the facts.
1: Very good. Um, now, so is Trump now, is he a paper tiger on this? Is this, are we likely to see him just fold as he's is folded on other,
3: uh, other issues to date? Uh, who knows? Um, it's really difficult to predict what he's going to do on China as it is with other issues. You might remember that during the campaign, Donald Trump said that on day one, which is 45 days ago or so, he was going to declare China a currency manipulator. He hasn't done that yet. Uh, It may very well be that he does that in April when Treasury does its normally scheduled review of all currencies. But remember, this doesn't matter. This is a really paper tiger issue. There is no concrete penalty on China for declaring them a currency manipulator. Then, of course, he promised that he was going to put a 45% tax on everything that comes from China. Now, my assumption is that some of his smarter advisors are going to say to him, well, President Trump, what do you think this might do to prices at Walmart, at Costco? And will your supporters be excited about this? Because really, where else are they going to get electronics and clothing and things like that? So my guess is instead, he's going to put a high tariff on a handful of goods, probably not consumer goods, things like steel and aluminum, just so he can make a point. And this will not have a big impact on anything. And I think the Chinese will react in a measured and proportionate way, just like they've done in the past. So you might remember that in 2009, President Obama put a very high tax on the imports of truck and car tires from China. So what happened here? Tire prices went up. We imported more tires from Brazil and other places, and we didn't bring back any tire jobs, really. And the Chinese retaliated. They put a really high tax on imports from the United States of chicken feet. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, go ahead and laugh, but that's actually a, that's a lot. really I mean, really big industry. Think about how many chickens we eat and how many how few of the feet we consume. <laughs> so it really hurt the poultry industry, which of course is heavily concentrated in the Midwest. But after 3 years of this fruitlessness, both sides came back to the table and said, "Okay, we're going to end the chicken feet thing, we're going to end the tire thing." <laughs> I think the Chinese will react in a similar way.
1: So before I go back to John, I want to ask another question of Yasheng.
3: Uh, so you know, many pundits
1: have focused on the idea that Trump's abdication of American leadership in the realm of global trade represents a, an unprecedented opportunity for Beijing. But there is a downside to it as well, uh, to, to a contraction in the global re- regime for trade. And this is something that you've t- talked to me about before. Uh, tell me, how, how do I mean, because after all, China does uh, model a lot of its assumptions about what's going to happen globally. Uh, and it did so on the assumption that there would be continued robust global trade. Yeah. So,
0: so I, I think it's going to be a very interesting time to test the following hypothesis, which has been popular in China, which is that um, uh, China, uh, the United States stands in the way of the rise of China. And to weaken the United States is going to improve the status and position of China. My own view is that the re- reality is exactly the opposite. There is a very famous uh, MIT economist, Charles Kindleberger, who proposed the theory in 1971 that says something to the following effect, which is global trade and investment flows benefit from trade liberalization, investment liberalization, but overwhelmingly it needs an anchor. It needs a political and geopolitical uh, anchor what he calls a hegemonic power. And that hegemonic power is provided by the United States. The leadership of the United States is actually the underpinning of the tremendous liberalization, trade liberalization, investment liberalization, of which the Brenton Woods system, of which after 1980, China has been one of the biggest beneficiaries of that system. Once that system goes down, China is going to be among the first to suffer from the lack of global leadership by the United States. If you look at trade to Chinese uh, GDP ratio, unusually for a continental economy, the the ratio is in excess of 40%. Usually continental economy has a lower uh, trade GDP ratio. United States is only in the 20s. Japan, which we usually think of as a, as, a, as a trading power is, in, is 35, right? So essentially what China does is that China imports raw materials from Australia, from Africa, imports uh, intermediate products from Southeast Asia, manufactures, assembles them, and then the finished products can be either consumed in China or exported to other countries. Essentially what that economic model says is that China is actually very vulnerable to global risks scattered around the world. Lack of American leadership, and it depends on the manner on which that lack of American leadership is going to happen, is going to invite risk-taking by countries like North Korea, by ISIS, by terrorist groups. When you have an escalation of global political, geopolitical risks, China will be the, among the first to, uh, to, to suffer. And let me say that, I worry less about Peter Navarro, the kind of 45% tariff on, on China. I worry less about that scenario than I do about a disarray and fail presidency scenario, which is really unfolding right in front of us uh, every day. I really worry about that scenario, lack of global leadership, especially not as a result of a deliberate decision, but as a result of Total political dysfunction in Washington, D.C., that's going to invite a huge amount of risk-taking and provocations from uh, terrorist groups, from countries like North Korea. Think about if there's a provocative action from North Korea. It's going to affect the North-South Korea relationship dramatically. South Korea, even though it's a small country, is the 11th largest economy in the world is a major trading partner with China in terms of investment, in terms of trade flows, in terms of technology exchanges. The largest group of Tsinghua students now in the School of Economics and Management, foreign students, are from South Korea, right? Once that relationship goes down, right? North Korea is really marginal in terms of economics. It's, it's a huge political, geopolitical risk. Once that risk, it's going to happen. It's going to affect South Korea. It's going to affect China through this uh, economic, uh, economic channel. So I worry about the, the, the demise of the global leadership in the absence of European Union. European Union is now in disarray. China is really not there to lead the rest of the world. I worry about that 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 rudderless uh, scenario so, and, yeah, and
1: that, that actually leads me to the question that I want to ask John um is it out of fear of this rudderless scenario is it possibly out of fear of the kind of collapse scenario that that Yasheng just described uh that at Davos Xi Jinping sort of stepped up and held high the banner of economic globalization uh or, or, I mean, what kind of an opportunity does this re- represent for him if, I think, as we can probably agree, you know, uh, China is not really ready to take, to supplant the U.S. as the global hegemon? At least, will it be able to keep a global trade system alive? Uh, or is it looking to supplant the Bretton Woods institutions that we talked about with things of its own devising, like AIIB?
2: I think, it, I, I don't think it's looking to supplant uh, anything at the time being. Maybe in the long term, perhaps. But I think that the Chinese elites, if you will, now, as Trump's administration is rolling out or not rolling out its policies, and, and they're, they're extremely worried. And so at, at Davos, you clearly saw Xi Jinping pivoting and, and raising high, as you said, the banner of globalization, but not so much to, to replace the United States, but hopefully to remind the United States that China still needs America uh, very much, uh, as, as much as America needs America itself. And I think that um, on the you know on, on the surface in China you have this zero sum mentality about how the world works. But underneath, um, in speaking with Ch- Chinese elites, you really have also a very clear understanding that they they know that they need a strong America in order to to continue. And the 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 threat that Trump the Trump administration presents is that an American disarray would really and, and I think actually I agree with 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 Yasheng on the issue of, I I don't really worry so much about Navarro and his 45% tariff. And I think that's just a lot of rhetorical noise from the campaign. The thing I worry about is the United States that doesn't pay attention to Asia at all. And it is, you know, involved in this, you know, did Obama tap Trump Tower, you know, um, Uh, buy Ivanka's toys, this kind of ridiculous navel-gazing that is going to threaten the whole world community, much more so than uh, a 45% tariff on Chinese steel or what have you. I don't even think they have the capacity to do something like that. You, you notice how they rolled out their, their anti-Muslim travel ban and then that failure, and I think that that – that model for governance or lack of governance threatens, actually, not just the U.S.-China relationship, but, but the whole global system as well. Picking up on a theme here. That's for good. Uh,
1: Eddie, I want to turn to you. And, and, and we mentioned just now some of the Chinese uh, economic initiatives. We've got quite a number of them now, probably uh, Xi Jinping's signature uh, One Belt, One Road initiative is probably the best known, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, AIIB. We've got uh, the RCEP, or the Regional Comprehensive Economic uh, Partnership. Uh, Is the sort of abdication of the U.S. uh, no longer pushing things like TPP, uh, no longer in a position to even as clumsily as he did try to oppose China's expansion of AIIB, uh, as Obama did, is this Has this cleared the ground now for China to be able to roll these things out and to present uh, uh, maybe for countries that may have been ambivalent about these Chinese institutions uh, with no, you know, absent any kind of an alternative,
3: are they going to go into China's arms? Actually, before I respond to that, let me follow up with uh, a point that's been making its way through the conversation in the last couple of minutes, which is that We might not need to worry about the Trump administration doing something really stupid like putting a 45 percent tax on on all imports. Um, I mean, granted, it is really stupid and it's hard to imagine them doing it for a whole variety of reasons. But given how much this appears to be a core belief for Donald Trump, this is not something that Peter Navarro just slipped under the door of the Oval Office. Trump's been talking about this stuff for many years. In a 2010 TV interview, he said in response to a question, sure, I'd love to have a trade war with China. Right. I mean, he's been going after this for, this is a rock principle for him. So the fact that he's gonna get frustrated with banning Muslims from coming into the country, the fact that he's gonna get frustrated finding the wires In the Trump Tower that Obama put in Um, you know maybe this is where he comes back so all I want to say is just because we think it's too stupid to happen we can't we can't stop pushing back with the facts and so I I don't think we should become complacent oh never we don't have to talk about that issue because he's not gonna do it all right so getting back to your real question Um, you know I I, I think I agree that um, China is not capable of, nor do I think they wish to take on the global leadership role. Uh, I don't think it suits the Communist Party right now, and I don't think they're capable of it for a whole range of issues including the way that they typically negotiate overseas, especially in multilateral organizations. So while I think there is going to be an interesting series of conversations uh, in Chile coming up soon, for example, about China's idea to promote uh, their own version of TPP, and it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that our version of TPP excluded China, now their version of TPP is going to exclude us, uh, but at least USTR is going to be sending some people there to talk. But Is Vietnam? Is Indonesia? Is Malaysia? Is Singapore? uh, Are are most of the countries in the region, especially South Korea right now, are they going to be really ready to participate in an organization that's run by China? And think about, you know, you mentioned Bretton Woods earlier. We really had the opportunity in the post-war period to write the rules for global trade and financial flows. And so to argue that WTO has been bad for us. IMF has been bad for us. It's just crazy. But is the rest of the world going to allow China to step in and fill that role of writing the rules? Right. I mean, it's interesting. I, I was in a conversation with Susan Shirk
1: uh, that we had on the podcast the other day, and I asked her what her reaction was to Xi's Davos speech, and she said something I thought was really interesting. She She's a, was thrilled to hear him uh, basically Affirming the very things that she had under the Clinton administration, working in the State Department, tried to push China into sort of embracing this, the, these these global systems. And uh, did you did, that resonated with me? I don't know. How yeah, to- you know, I
3: think to a certain extent, we are all happy to hear the way Xi Jinping spoke at Davos. The way many people were happy to hear the way Donald Trump spoke at the Capitol the other day because it wasn't the way they normally speak. Low bar, low bar. <laughs> okay. Uh, and so we gave them points for less fiery rhetoric, more uh, a better, better performance. But I don't think this changes the way that China wants to participate in the, in the global uh, community, um, which is I think they want to be a, a supporting actor rather than the lead. Okay. Let's let's move to China right now and, and look at how the Chinese media
1: has covered uh, the Trump administration to date. Uh, one thing that I think is really interesting is that they've imposed a very strict regimen of censorship. They've really tried to monopolize the conversation among very directly state-controlled media outlets. Uh, Yasheng, what's your sense of why they're doing this and what this signals?
0: Well, I, I don't really know directly why they did it the way they did it, but I can offer some uh, hypotheses. Uh, why is that, it's very interesting that uh, China, last time we checked, is not a democracy, and then, but so many Chinese participated in the democratic process in 2016, a democratic process that belongs to the United States, right? And um, the Chinese Americans here, have Actually, I, I do want to give credit to the supporters of Trump uh, among the Chinese Americans in the following sense: the Chinese Americans traditionally have not been very active in politics. I think this time they got very active uh, for the wrong person, but but <laughs> but uh, maybe it took a uh, wrong person to get the Chinese uh, involvement in politics. A lot of Chinese. Yeah, I'm okay
1: with quiescence when it comes to this.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. So so, but but I you know you, I, I, I think getting. Uh, politically active is a plus in and of itself, right? Uh, Regardless of the consequences of that. But a lot of Chinese uh, got very active. Uh, I was invited by Chinese groups in China to give, uh, actually I had a debate in Shanghai with uh, quite a number of uh, formidable Trump supporters in Shanghai. And uh, uh, so that was very interesting. So, so, so I think there's after the election, there's probably a second uh, 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 guessing about what type of this kind of free flowing discussions would reflect on the nature of Chinese political system itself, right? So, so I, I think that's one reason. And the other reason is that his surprise, uh, his uh, victory was a surprise not only to us but also to the Chinese. And there was a lot of cheering of him uh, before the election, not just among the Chinese Americans here, but also among mainstream Chinese uh, commentators, uh, scholars, and, and business people. And uh, I think because of the surprise victory that he had and because of the hard rhetoric and apparent willingness to carry his rhetoric into policy, the phone conversation with Tsai ing was was a... Was a, was a indicative of of that. There was second thinking among the Chinese political elites to uh, sort of to control this pro-Trump narrative coming out of the mainstream Chinese uh, political and intellectual uh, figures, and because because they realized that uh, Trump in the end was not really good. For, for China. I think that these are probably the reasons that I can think of. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. that's a very good,
1: good, good bunch of reasons. Andy, how would you assess China's handling of the new Trump administration uh, from what you can see so far? This is a actually polite rewording. Uh, so I'm asking, why, why you know, what, what do you think of how, how Beijing's response has been so far? Uh, this is a polite rewording of a, a question that a friend of mine kind of uh, phrased yesterday, something more like, how effing smart does Xi Jinping look next to this ass clown? <laughs>
3: He's in the room, by the way, this friend of mine. Okay, you'll excuse me if I don't uh, use exactly the same language. but uh, uh, You know, I I think it showed a tremendous amount of maturity on the part of Xi Jinping and the Communist Party leadership that they have responded to Trump in a very calm and measured way. They're basically waiting him out to see what he's really going to do because he hasn't done anything that's really important to them yet. But the fact that they're not taking the bait um, is great, and I think it's a big leap in, in maturity compared to how they might have reacted five years ago or certainly 10 years ago. Uh, the Tsai one phone call that we talked about is a great example of that. Um, this is kind of a, a core issue. I don't need to explain that to this audience, I think. And the fact that China responded Really quietly. And some people are suggesting that Xi Jinping, in fact, refused to take a phone call with Trump for a while just to kind of put him on edge, <laughs> um, is great. So I, I give them a lot of points for that. And as I said, I think even if Trump calls them a currency manipulator, manipulator puts tariffs on a few things, they'll respond in a measured way. I don't get the sense that anyone in China wants a trade war or any other kind of elevated conflict with the United States right now.
1: John, do you do you feel the same way about so how, how Beijing has handled it, things so far?
2: Generally speaking, but they I mean they've seen this with every president except for Obama. So every president since Nixon has always run on a campaign using rhetoric that criticized the previous president's China policy, except for Obama. He actually said he was going to build on Uh, george w bush's china relationship so they they, clinton saying coddling dictators exactly and and right and 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 then um uh jimmy carter using equally colorful language about nixon's uh, china policy Uh, So so they're used to this in a sense. And so you do see them reacting, I think, along those lines. So they're um, but they also have used the election as a way to educate the Chinese people, saying this is what democracy gives you. And so from that perspective, it's been actually, I think, somewhat useful for the party state. Um, to see to see this this gentleman you know, aged orange in the White House.
1: Um. Staying with you, John. Staying with you, John. Uh, a lot of people have speculated that uh, the Xi Jinping's phone call in which uh, Trump seems to have affirmed American commitment to the so-called one China policy couldn't have come without a price. That he must have exacted something from Xi Jinping, Mister you know, art of the deal after all. Right? Uh, and a lot of people, the speculation has run to that it was something on North Korea. Are we seeing any, do you, do you buy that? Is that something that resonates with you? Not
2: so much, okay. I, I but I do think that the Chinese understand that there, regardless of the administration, there's a sea change in Washington and how Washington views the relationship. And that regardless of whether you, what party you belong to, there's a sense among many China watchers in, in, in DC that the Americans have been played by the Chinese. And the Chinese, I think, are getting that message. And so from that perspective, you, you see the Chinese being willing, like, for example, Jack Ma didn't go to Trump Tower because he just was in the neighborhood, right? Um, he's not going to go there without approval from some party organization. And so the Chinese are uh, reaching out to the Trump administration and want to figure out ways that they can, things that they can do to in some way ameliorate, uh, mollify the Trump administration on, on, on the China issue. Because again, they are so, they, they actually, it is their most important foreign relation and has been for the last 50 years.
1: Yashong, are historians gonna look back at the year 2016 as some sort of watershed moment where, that maybe marked the end of the American century and the beginning of the Chinese one? Do you think that there's a likelihood that that's going to happen?
0: Mm. Um, I think uh, there is no question. Regardless of what happens to the relative uh, position of China vis-a-vis the United States, 2016 is a is is a pivotal moment in history, in the following sense, which is that this country has always operated on the principle that, for example, if you if you take uh, 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 Trump's uh, uh, making America great again, right? So uh, let's take it at its face value. I do not recall any previous American president who said, my policy is to make America not great again, um, <laughs> or oh, America second, or oh, America third, right? Nobody in a democratic country will say things like that, right? So the, the disagreement between Trump and his Predecessors, it's really not about making a market first, making a market great again or not. It's really about fundamentally about the methods whereby you do that, right? So there is a consensus since, by the way, since 1776, since the publications uh, by uh, Adam Smith and David Ricardo, there's a sense that you make yourself great again by trading, by investment, and and global economics is about positive sum uh, rather than about negative sum or zero sum.
1: The good old Edgeworth box.
0: Right? Uh, Edgeworth right. box, right? Yeah. So I improve, not at your expense, but you also improve uh, as well, right? So this is a, a, a disruptive moment in history in a sense now we have a president who violently disagrees with that first principle in economics (laughs) and in political economy. And this is extremely dangerous. I agree with Andy, by the way, that uh, maybe John, uh, one of you has said that Chinese for a long time have also operated on the sort of zero-sum way of thinking about the world. But in terms of their behavior, they know that they don't dictate, dictate the rules of the game in terms of their behavior their behavior is more of a positive sum uh, rather than negative sum or zero sum so it is really really a pivotal moment when the United States is turning inward is viewing trade investment as fundamentally incompatible with the US interest so it is in that sense that 2016 is a pivotal moment right. and and I'm not I don't believe, though, because of that, China is going to benefit. I actually believe that China benefits the most when you have a global liberal trading order, a global liberal investment order, rather than one that is illiberal.
1: Uh, John, I mean, it's been re- observed—I mean, rightly, I think—that that Trump is really part of a. Phenomenon uh, that we see, have seen now in quite a number of countries, uh, populist nationalism, right? Uh, it's anti-elitist. It's a rejection of sort of rule by the technocrats, by the experts. It's, uh, uh, you know, people like, like, like us. <laughs> Certainly, um, some of these, these, these forces are present in China as well, right? Uh, but to a great extent, I think they've been kind of contained. Uh, let, let's talk about the party state's posture vis-a-vis this populist nationalist phenomenon. Uh, what, do you, what, do you, what do you make of this, both domestically and maybe globally? Is Beijing going to be able to keep the lid on it, or is it going to con, you know, contain uh, Beijing's ability to lead globally, as she you know, seems to want to do? Uh,
2: I think that in China you have seen a rise in nationalism, but it's never something that I have thought was a, a huge social movement that the party would lose control of. Um, The party likes to point to the nationalistic population in order to justify policies, for example, on Taiwan or in Hong Kong, etc. But I think that's less so it's it's less of an issue than they try to make it in order because they use that to justify their policies. And I think that their ability to control, not necessarily to turn off and on the switch, but to control thinking and how these movements operate is, is still very high. Right uh, and, and and you know You've got a leash on it.
0: They have a, they have a, yeah. they, have a, they have a very strong leash on it. Yeah. make uh,
2: sense, Andy?
1: Do you, you, you feel Yasheng? Do you want to talk talk about that? There's,
0: well, there's actually an opinion survey that shows systematically more Chinese and more Indians are supportive of trade, and uh, so it, it's not surprising because for poor countries, when they are incorporated in the world trading system. And they get to export uh, textile and, and, and trump ties by the by the way uh, and <laughs> the, the 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 benefits are distributed across the board right because these are essentially in the in the comparative advantage of China and India to engage in trade whereas uh, Andy pointed out there's a real political dynamic in the United States whereby the labor is losing in the trade and and and, and uh, what well, we can attribute whether or not the laws to the trade or to the technology. But nevertheless, I think the evidence is very clear in terms of the labor income. It has been stagnant since the uh, 1970s. But that's really an issue of domestic, political, social arrangements, rather than the way you manage trade or you manage technology. The fundamental failing of the United States is that while it is opened up to trade and to technology, it has not done a good job in terms of social protection, education, human capital improvement, infrastructure, and things like that. These are all function of the political dysfunctions in Washington, D.C., rather than a result of the fact there are millions of Chinese and Indians working in the, uh, in the, in the factories. Very well said. Very well yeah. said. John,
2: you wanted to add something. So I just yeah. wanted Let's hear that. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to go back to Chinese nationalism for a second. Um, and it's always been sort of popped up as some type of a bogeyman about, you know, the angry China. But when I was living there in the, in the late 1990s, I mean, the most popular athlete in China, in addition to being Yao Ming, but in, in actually more important than Yao Ming, was Michael Jordan. And the, the NBA finals in China, which were aired at 8.30 a.m., had 250 million viewers. And so a country that is closed off to the world, increasingly nationalistic, doesn't have the obsession with the NBA or the premier soccer league for that, matter. I think your
1: book, if anything, I mean, if you've read John's book, and I hope you all do, you'll understand the depths of Americophilia that run through the Chinese veins and how that will always be a sort of a a curb on, I mean, the most vicious sorts of of nationalism. But not just just,
2: just America, also South Korean, Japanese even. Sure. Um, it, this is a very globalized country, much more so than, in, in many ways, the United States. I had originally hoped to do a little moderator mischief here and get these two fighting because we
1: have a, a notoriously or, or uh, famously uh, bullish Person, vanishing breed here on the Chinese economy, but I think we don't really, unfortunately, have time for that today. So I'm going to move to my last question, and then and then ask uh, and get. We do have a couple of questions here from the audience. I'll I'll ask one of them, but first, uh, why don't each of you take a crack at this? Uh, So, um, within a realistic framework of what is politically possible. What's the best way for Xi Jinping and and for the Beijing leadership to capitalize on the opportunities presented right now by Trump? And we'll start with you, Andy.
3: I think that um, the main things that have been holding China back from being more of a global player have not come from the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, And the opportunity that Trump provides is marginal at best. I think the problems have been problems created by China, Uh, the way they've behaved abroad, uh, whether they're harassing their neighbors like Japan or Vietnam or the Philippines, uh, South Korea these days over the THAAD issue, uh, the way that they're harassing some of their own citizens in places like Tibet or in Xinjiang, um, leave them in a position where they don't have the credibility to be a global leader. So they need to find a way to modify that own internal dynamic so that they can play that kind of role, uh, which is more commensurate for the, with the economic role that they already play globally. Okay, great. Uh, Yasheng, do you want to take a crack?
0: Uh, except uh, I agree with, with everything, everything that you said. Right. Yes. <laughs>
1: oh, <okay>. <laughs> so, <laughs> essentially... Uh, China basically doesn't have anything but maybe a marginal bump from this and just it takes the opportunity to look in, inward and see how its own aggressive behaviors is
0: abroad. Andy talks about politics, but I do want to emphasize that China needs to reform its economy more, addressing the SOE, uh, state owned enterprise uh, uh, land issues and things like that. So trade, trade shouldn't be so important for a continental economy such as China. In the first place, right? So, when you have an anti global sentiment coming from uh, the United States and maybe even from Europe l- later this year, this is an opportunity for the country to look inward,
2: dial down the mercury, and to undertake right.
0: the reforms, dramatic reforms.
2: And it, the Chinese actually have an opportunity as the West, the United States, and Europe turn inward to blame the West and the United States for their problems and to say to their people, look, we have to all belt tighten. We need to carry out these economic reforms because America and the the Western Europeans have gone completely off the rails. So it does provide them with a potential justification. And the Chinese traditionally have used What's happening overseas? Whether it's their um, uh, engagement with WTO, their uh, relationship with you know test ban treaties, et cetera, as a way to force change in China, and this actually creates an opportunity them, for them to blame. China's current lower growth rate on foreigners and saying, as a, as, as a result, we need to reform the economy uh, more, more aggressively. If I may seize my, my position
1: as moderator to interject my own thinking, uh, what about as a soft power uh, opportunity? This is something where China has had a conspicuous deficit or where it has never been able to project in any way, but isn't this an opportunity to sort of generate goodwill in other parts of the world?
3: Uh, That opportunity has always been there, though. Right. Um, You know, if if the U.S. withdraws, there's always a simplistic comparison between... Again, getting back to the points I made a couple of minutes ago, um, you know, if if your soft power includes trying to shut down a small movie festival in a remote part of Australia that happens to show a movie you don't like, how do you broadcast soft power? How do you... You know, it just... (laughs)
1: Great. I want right, to move to a couple of questions from, from uh, the audience. We have one from Linda here. Uh, U.S. China, you know, you can sort of put your hand up, and whoever wants to grab this one, just one of you. U.S.-China relations are always rationalized and justified in economic terms. How can we better steer the rationales toward cultural and more humanistic aims instead, or more often? A better world cannot just come about because people are making more money. And uh, we have a couple of economists here, so we'll leave them out of this in terms of the job.
2: <laughs>
1: so, yeah, so how do we improve cross cultural uh, understanding well uh, one the of the age issues of a is culture free presidency
2: right well one of the issues <laughs> is to get more more Ameri- i mean there's no there's no problem getting chinese interested in the united states there is a problem getting americans interested in china right. uh, and so how do you do that and so the 100,000 strong proposal from the clinton administration i mean sort of obama administration failed miserably well, um, well,
1: I don't know about that. I mean, they hit their numbers, didn't they?
2: Well, I mean, if you consider like three days in Beijing as part of the hundred thousand strong, then you've you've made your numbers. But <laughs> but well, it I was, it, you know, we can we can talk about that later after the show. But but I think I think that the reality is that it's been a challenge to get uh, more Americans. And Stanford shut down their program in Beijing recently, and the enrollment in in China related programs in, in U.S. U- universities are down, uh, and that's that's an issue. Um, Partially because, you know, you do see a closing of the American mind on China related issues. It's not Prague anymore. Beijing is not as cool as Prague was. um, And it's it's become more difficult in, in, in that sense for Americans to embrace the China story turn that around, though, and you do have lots of Chinese embracing the American story. So I think that's there. But, but, but I think there is, there is a problem in the United States in, in terms of getting more people to become and to embrace the China story. And, and that's a big challenge. And how to do that um, in, in a situation where you have a drumbeat of relatively negative news about China uh, is, a, is a big challenge. And we turn that cha- challenge to our friends
1: here at the 1990 Institute mm-hmm. and hope that they can uh, yeah. take it on uh, in a serious way. I want to, uh, another question here. Then and This one is really about schadenfreude. About shameful joy, that wonderful German word. So when Bush, presumably Bush 43, won the presidency, Chinese were happy because they thought he was an idiot. He was not very smart, <laughs> which would help China's power uh, versus the U.S. How might this be the same or different when it comes to Donald Trump? Is this is there a lot of sort of, yay, he's president because he's a moron and it's going to diminish American power and appeal internationally? <laughs>
0: okay, so... Uh, I actually think that, uh, so John so made that point about uh, Clinton criticizing China during the campaign, and then Bush uh, did the same. But I think we have a real difference here. The difference is the following. When Clinton criticized China and, uh, during the campaign, he was doing it maybe out of his own belief, and maybe he was doing it for political convenience, but one thing that separates Clinton from Trump, other than many, many other things, <laughs> is, is, is that Clinton had a. Like 70 positive, IQ points? Okay. Well, <laughs> um, <laughs> the, Clinton had a positive sound view of the world, right? So he was expanding NAFTA, he was expanding, uh, uh, he was. Uh, Expanding uh, the United States uh, participation in global trade investment order So he didn't reject the entire ideology of free trade or free-ish trade or fair trade He didn't do that So in that context, he criticized China And that criticism probably was more consistent politically But less consistent in terms of with his uh, economic philosophy Whereas Trump to the extent the person had any philosophy at all, it was all actually consistent, right? So his criticism of China came from this larger rejection of global trade, right? So I view Trump's threat to impose a 45% tariff on China as more credible than what Clinton said during the campaign. So earlier I said that I don't worry about that. I don't mean I don't worry about the policy per se. All I'm saying is that he was probably going to be preoccupied with all these disarray and and childish uh, uh, plays that he didn't even have the time to. By the way, uh, the opportunity to declare China as a, a currency manipulator, that comes in April. When the Treasury Department does this annual review of the currency policies of China and other countries. Once the Treasury reaches the conclusion that China manipulates uh, 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 currency, then the White House has no choice but to impose uh, tariff, tariffs. Right? So it's not a discretionary thing. It is it is uh, it is almost uh, automatic. That's why Obama had tried to massage the way that Treasury Department uh, manage that process of uh, that research process. So, so I, I do believe that the threat is actually credible because it's consistent with a larger, larger framework of uh, Trump's philosophy.
1: Andy, last last comment to you before we, we wrap up here.
0: Yeah. Well, first,
3: just let me comment briefly on the currency manipulation thing, because I I think that uh, Donald Trump is going to be very surprised if someone reads aloud to him the law. We actually have a law in the United States on foreign currency. I'm not suggesting he's going to read it. But the law actually says that once the Treasury Secretary declares a current country to be manipulating the currency, and we haven't done this in 20 years, the law says that then kicks off a one-year period of negotiation. Uh, No penalties whatsoever for one year. In fact, the law, which actually says one year of enhanced bilateral engagement.
0: Oh, now during my, like good
3: thing. <laughs> during my diplomatic career, I participated in a lot of trade negotiations, including with the Chinese. I don't know what enhanced negotiations are unless like we're gonna waterboard uh... <laughs> the central bank governor of China, I don't know. But the other important point is that under the law, after one year, if the Chinese don't do what we want them to do, and in fact, they're manipulating their currency today to help us. That's a really important point. <laughs> They're sitting in China going, what, you want us to stop? Um, If they don't, after one year, do what we want, then the penalty under the law is that the U.S. Overseas Private Investment Corporation, OPIC, must stop insuring American companies operating in China against political risk. Mm. So you're basically screwing American companies, not China. But on top of that, after Tiananmen in 1989, Congress banned OPIC from doing any business in China. So the one penalty under the law that would matter has already been in place since 1989 the other last penalty is that Donald Trump gets to call the IMF and say I really want you to keep a close eye on the Chinese <laughs> it sounds like this thing really has teeth well I don't know about you guys but
1: I am I feel very much enhanced by this conversation let's give it up to this trigger title John Conquer, Joshua Baum, Andy Rothman, I'm Karzeguo I have a little bit of text I have to read the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Wu and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks to Monica Lee and to Brian Huang and, and to Margaret Connolly, who invited me here and took care of absolutely everything. Thanks also to anla Chang and Sarai Darabi from SupChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Really, drop us an email. I'd lo- I love getting email from people. I, uh, and I write back. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. And one more thing to add, the views expressed on this podcast by both the guests and the host do not necessarily reflect those of the 1990 Institute. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye.